Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And the eagle-eyed, or perhaps bat-eared among you, will have noticed that we skipped a week last week. Uh, we have, over the course of these insane last few months, done our best when appropriate to connect the various crises that have been affecting our nation and our world to boxing. This is, after all, a boxing podcast. Whether that be having Brian Custer talk to us about what it is like to have the talk with his young sons about how African-Americans are supposed to behave around police, or talking to heavyweight contender Otto Valin about his experience with COVID-19. Uh, last week, Eric, the pandemic struck very close to home indeed, uh, directly affected you, and by extension, everyone here at the podcast and at Showtime Sports. Yeah, it's been a rough week for me, uh, really a rough couple of weeks since we had about five or six days of buildup knowing this was coming. Uh, but my dad, Ray Raskin, died last Thursday night at age 77. He contracted COVID in the skilled nursing facility where he was living. Although after I initially was under the impression that that's what he died of, it has since been explained to me that it was really Parkinson's complications that did it. And the COVID was somewhat incidental Although it's possible that if not for the Parkinson's complications, COVID was on its way to killing him. That's all fairly immaterial to us in the end. Uh, the point is, my family and I had to say goodbye to a man who came from almost nothing, raised in a poor neighborhood in Philadelphia, made himself a success, raised four sons, put us all through college, and ended up financially accomplished enough that he's going to play a huge role in putting my kids through college. God knows I can't do it on a journalist's salary. Uh, my dad was a world-class bridge player, a better-than-world-class coupon clipper and bargain hunter, uh, and he deserves most of the credit, uh, or the blame, uh, for me becoming a boxing journalist. It was toward the end of August 1997. I'd graduated college three months earlier, spent the summer earning close to minimum wage as a counselor at a day camp, was not terribly motivated to find a real job, but my dad was motivated enough for the both of us, and he found the ad in the Philadelphia Inquirer for a sports editor position that turned out to be a job at The Ring magazine, and the rest is history. So if not for my dad, uh, there would be no Raskin and Mulvaney. I mean, huh? I wouldn't exist in the first place if not for my dad, of course. <laughs> <I see. laughs> um, but if not for my dad finding me that job listing, you all might currently be listening to Showtime Boxing with Mulvaney and Detloff. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, but I suppose my boxing media career is not my dad's ultimate number one legacy. Uh, it's the four sons he and my mom raised to be decent, considerate, productive people and his five grandkids. Uh, so I'd like to dedicate this episode of the podcast to my dad, the first person I ever watched a boxing match with, a regular listener to my boxing podcast for most of the last 10 years, a good man, a success story. He will be missed. You have, of course, my very deepest sympathies and condolences. Um, yeah, look, losing a parent is just, it's really one of the hardest things to endure in life. And it's sort of, it is, it is a transformative experience. And when I lost my father, uh, it was, it, it felt as if it was a whole new chapter. It was like, there's the mm. before you've lost your first parent and then after, and nothing is quite the same again. Um, uh, it, it's, yeah, particularly when you're, you're, parent has, has played such a fundamental role in your life. Uh, it took me a while to recover fully from death of 
by that, it, you know, and you may well find this that you might be just walking along or or just engaged in some like tedious activity, and suddenly some memory will pop up in your head, and right. and that will sort of send you off. Um, you know, not that you need any advice from me, but the the one thing that I learned is be prepared to take some time for yourself when necessary, and and uh, you know, take that step and sit back and and think about him whenever the memories come back. It's uh, it's well worth doing, and uh, he sounds like a good man, and. Um, Sorry to see him go, and it's this has all sucked. The last seven <laughs> yes. months has sucked for everybody, <laughs> right. but but to, but to lose your father in the middle of it, it makes it suck even more. And you do, you have my very deepest condolences. Thank you very much, sir. All right, are we ready to return to being relatively flippant and getting back to work? <laughs> I think so. Let's do flippant. Okay, okay let's do flippant. Um, later in this podcast. We will be joined for the second time during the lockdown. Talk about people whose lockdown sucks. Steve Farhood is back to join us again, poor guy. Um, <laughs> uh, we will discuss, yes, the return of boxing. Uh, yes, boxing is back in the United States and on our TV screens. As Top Rank put together the first two of many promised cards from the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Uh, we will talk about them, about boxing's return more generally, and about the rest of the news around the sport over these past couple of weeks. Um, and now that boxing is officially back, we are going to pack away our What You've Been Watching segment with which we've been opening our podcasts over these last several boxing three weeks. Well, maybe we'll give it one last quick send-off uh, because you and I have both watched Ringside, uh, a documentary on Showtime that follows two young boxers, Kenneth Sims Jr. and Destiny Butler Jr. from Chicago's South Side over nine or so years. Uh, the documentary aired last Friday on Showtime, but if you missed it, don't worry, it is still available on Showtime On Demand and available now platforms. Um, shortly, we will talk to the two young boxers, Kenny Sims and Destiny Butler. But before we do, Eric, what were your general impressions of Ringside? I liked it. I, I thought it was well put together. Um, you know, we, we talked a lot during our review of the Monzone series about how effectively they juggled two timelines. Uh, yeah. Well, this wasn't two timelines, but it was two parallel stories. And I thought they were nicely balanced. The obvious comparison here, the, the first thing that jumped to mind when I first learned what Ringside was about is Hoop Dreams. Now, mm. I don't remember all the beats of Hoop Dreams too well. I saw it a long time ago. But in terms of the broad strokes, this is very similar. Following two promising young athletes through their teen years into young adulthood and seeing just how hard it is to make it to the top, even if you have a lot of talent. Mm. Um, also, I think this documentary is very effective for refuting the most common argument against boxing. You know, we, we've all heard it and thought it many times that, that this sport is brutal and it has an adverse physical effect on so many of its athletes. But the counter argument we always turn to is that boxing saves more lives than <laughs> it shortens. Right. Uh, and yep. I think this documentary really illustrates that here are two young men from families without much money one living in a tiny apartment with his parents, one in jail, and boxing is their ticket out, their motivation. It instills discipline. Uh, you know, and the documentary doesn't have to spell all that out, but but you see it quite clearly. They're sacrificing themselves for boxing to an extent, but they're clearly getting a lot out of boxing. So that mm. that was one of the key things that I really took away from it. What what did you think of the doc here and what what stood out to you in it? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it it's tough 
to condense, you know, eight or nine years of two people's lives, or really four people's lives, as the focus is almost as much on the the, the fathers as it right. is on the on the boxes, into you know one an hour or so or whatever of documentary. There were times I will admit, well, because of the way it was condensed, I found the timing a bit confusing. There were there were moments where I wasn't quite sure what year it was now, or how old people were, or how <laughs> right. much time had elapsed. But you know, that's a minor gripe. Um, you know, I thought it was quite poignant. Uh, the lives, you know, both both of these folks live, um, you know, sort of challenged our uh, preconceptions and prejudices a little bit. Like if you were to say it was about, you know, one young man who, who sort of avoided temptation and was successful and one who was not and one who lived, whose family moved to the suburbs, someone who stayed sort of in the hood, you think, oh, well, obviously it's the kid who moved to the suburbs who, who got everything right. And actually it was Destiny Butler Sr. Jr. at one point said, yeah, dad moved us out into the suburbs and that was great. So that kind of challenges those preconceptions. It was the kid who moved to the suburbs who ended up going to jail. Right. Um, you know, and I thought it was quite an interesting subtext about parenting. You know, on the on the one hand, you know, there was Ken, Kenneth Sim Senior basically saying he wasn't effectively saying at the beginning he wasn't really giving Junior a chance to be his own person or make his own choices. He said, "Look, if you want to stop boxing, if you don't like boxing, you get really good at it, and then you can quit it." And essentially deciding for him that he was going to box, right? And 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 saying that he had set up a system around him to support him and keep him in that direction. And meanwhile, you have Destiny Butler Senior specifically resolving not to do that to his son. You know, to give him that extra freedom and and, and second guessing himself at that, about that at one point in the documentary. Me personally, I probably want what Mr. Butler was offering, but but at least in the short to medium term, it seems like it's that Sims approach to parenting that apparently proved the more successful. But you know, even though that Sims family situation seems solid and secure, you see you get a hint of the chaos all around them. You don't get a really strong look at. at, at this is sort of life in the streets around Southside, but it keeps sort of forcing itself into the documentary. You know, you see two of Sim's friends are murdered during the course of the filming, one of whom really affected him very deeply. Um, and we get, a, I think, a much better sense of who Sims Jr. is or grows up to be than Butler, simply because Butler was absent for so much of that timeline or, or we're only able to dip in and see him at little bits over the course of those many, many years. But um, overall, I, th I thought it was a very good look at two very different personalities, two lives that started off very much the same, but just through one misjudgment veered off in, in just such different directions. You know, I think, you know, at a time when, when more people are becoming aware of systemic racism, I think right. you really get a sense of how the system is stacked up against you if you're born poor and black and how one mistake can derail you and send you off into this whole other direction in a way that you probably would not happen if you had greater advantages, you know? And for me, there's that one scene of that boot camp that, that Butler is in during prison, and you've got black and Hispanic inmates being yelled at and belittled by white guards and instructors. And yeah. that, I think, particularly in this environment, really came home to me, and I thought, wow, uh, that, that sort of says an awful lot about, uh, about what this is about. It's a nominally about boxing, it's nominally about two young men, but it's about a lot more as well, I think. Yeah, that's it's certainly the timing of when this came out and what was going on in, in the world sort of puts it in a, a different perspective, particularly those scenes when when Destiny Butler is in jail and in that boot camp. And yeah, I, there just there are a lot of layers to it. It's uh, yeah. a documentary that I watched it once. I want to watch it a second time because I feel like now that I don't have to pay as much attention to sort of the plot of it. I know I know where the story's going. I right. feel like now I'm going to notice and absorb some things on a second viewing that I might have missed the first time through. 
Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think that's very true. It's a very different experience being able to just sit back and enjoy a documentary as opposed to sitting back and making notes that you have to talk about. <laughs> right. Uh, um, but uh, in addition to watching the documentary and indeed making notes, we actually have had the opportunity recently to talk to the two boxers at the heart of it, uh, whose lives, as we mentioned, followed very different paths during filming. Uh, coming up, Destiny Butler Jr., who uh, spent the bulk of filming time uh, in jail. But first, we talked to Kenneth Sims Jr., and we began by asking him what it was like to be followed by a documentary team for so many years. Uh, it was a good experience. I was about 14 when they first came to me, because originally they had did like a, uh, it was just like a short film, like 15 minutes, and oh. it was just me. So like in Ringside, and in the in new one, it's like, it's me and Destiny. Right. But in the short film, it was called A Father's Prayer, and it was just me and my dad. So they did that, and from that, that's what led to Ringside because they got a good, like, a good response from people. But them following me, it was kind. Of, I mean, when I was younger, I, you would see in the film, I was like, I was really shy, so I didn't really talk. <laughs> so it would probably be like, like I just get them one word answers. They ask me a question, and I say either yes, no, or I say okay. <laughs> but. Uh, the, the experience of watching it, it felt good. It's like, cause I get to see myself like grow up. Right. I got to see myself like as the time got went on, I, I was better at answering questions. Right. Wait, was it strange? So, I mean, were they like, I, I mean, I assume there were different times over the years where they would, they weren't like there all the time for like eight years, right? No, they, was weren't, it? There all, nah. <laughs> nah, they weren't there the whole time. It was difficult sometimes, like uh, sometimes when I was getting ready to fight. You know how people are after weigh-ins, right? They hungry, mm-hmm. they want to go eat. So sometimes after the weigh-in, when I once I had turned pro, they'd be like trying to interview me, like immediately <laughs> after the weigh-in, and I'd be like, "Can y'all do this later? I'm hungry. I'm trying to go eat." Right? <laughs> and they were just like, sometimes they'd be super aggressive. And then one time, my uh, my manager was just like, he's like, "Hey, y'all gotta y'all gotta leave my mom, but he gotta go eat. Y'all talk to him." <laughs> Right. So, 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 when did you find out that they would also be featuring Destiny and and making this this full movie out of it? And and given that you were both you know highly touted kids from the South Side, is it safe to say that you guys knew each other beforehand? Uh, I don't remember. I remember exactly when they told me that Destiny's going to be included. But yeah, me and Destiny, we've known each other since we were like eight, or nine years old. We used to oh. uh, travel all the times to tournaments and stuff. We went to Ireland together. Hmm. It was like a Chicago versus Ireland thing. We did that together. We were in Ireland for like two or three weeks together, thing together. So yeah, you know, that's we basically grew up together. Okay, um, and you know, there's a scene toward the end of the documentary where your father is in the ring working pads with Destiny while you watch really intently from the corner. Is that something that happened organically, or or is that one of those scenes where the the filmmakers uh, kind of set that up? Uh, it was just like a, uh, nah, it was just like a day that, uh, we just met at the gym. I mean, they was there, they wanted to see us together. Okay. But it wasn't like, they didn't set up like the pads and stuff. We just ended up like working out and they just recorded it. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. It looks like you're watching him really intently in, in that <laughs> scene. Nah, it's cause I was, uh, I was trying to, that, cause that was kind of like before Destiny had already got like all, like all the way back, like. Right. His time and everything. So I was just watching because I try to tell him stuff all the time whenever I see him. I see stuff that he can improve on. Because I look at Destin like my little brother a lot of times, so I try to look at everything that he does and try to help when he's around me. Okay. 
There, there are several points in this documentary that capture you, like experiencing, you know, real raw emotion. Uh, one is after you defeated Manny Robles in, in Atlantic City, just a month after your friend and fellow prospect Ed Brown was murdered. And, and on the one hand, that must have been incredibly hard to focus on training and on the fight. But on the other hand, you clearly wanted to not only win, but to win in his memory for him. Yeah. How hard was it to channel those emotions without letting them overwhelm you? Uh, I mean, it was kind of it was extremely hard just because, I mean, I, I, before every fight, I, I talked to Ed before every fight. Mm. Oh, wow. uh, and then um, that, for that particular card, it was like maybe a month, like a week or two before he passed, he was telling me he was trying to like get on the card. So I was thinking about that. Uh, like he was supposed to be, he was supposed, he might have he might have been fighting the same day, or we would have been in the locker room together. I was all that stuff was like going through my head. Oh man, yeah. Because and my fight, the last fight I had before that, we were on the same car. We were like in a hotel room together before the fight. We went to eat breakfast together before we fought dinner. We were in the locker room together, all that before that. Like his last fight, we had we were on the same car together. Oh man. So there, there was another emotional scene, maybe not not quite as uh, emotional as what you went through with 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 Ed, but um, the scene after you lost your your bout uh, in the U.S. Olympic trials. Uh, obviously, you've gone on to good things even without being an Olympian. But looking back, how, how devastating was that to you? Was and was it hard to? to motivate yourself to continue and, and just, you know, after you had won the, the PAL and the U S nationals, were you even more frustrated and disappointed that you didn't win the trials? Uh, honestly, I just hate to lose period. Okay. That's kind of where that came from at that moment. I just hate to lose. I hate to lose anything. That, that emotion was just me hating. I was more like, I mean, I was disappointed, but I was mad that I lost. Mm. Were there any motivation struggles afterwards uh, coming off of that? To, you know, to, or was it? Were you able to just shift gears and focus on on the next step in your in your boxing development? No, I never had any motivational shifts after that. Just because I felt like, like even though I lost, I was one of the youngest guys there at the time. I was only seventeen. I had just turned seventeen, and most of the guys there were older than me. So I knew like my time was coming and I just had to mm. be persistent and keep working. Mm. And my dad, growing up, he taught me like, don't never get down on yourself, don't never give up. Like, so I always keep a, I look at things like, I always keep a positive mindset no matter what's going on. Like, I know there's people out there that having a harder time than me and I know I could be doing worse. Right, right. There's one scene, especially in the documentary, where you're wearing a huge grin and you look very, very happy indeed. And that's when you're in New York after signing with Gary Shaw. And and, and yes. that moment when you realize that all the hard work is paying off and that you are now a professional prize fighter. Talk us through what that moment meant to you. Uh, honestly, like my family is very important. So Seeing my mom happy and my dad happy and my uncle's happy it kinda like was part of the reason why I was so happy. Yeah. And uh when I uh so Andre Woods I was been like a big like person that I look up to and I admire. And when I was like out there in the York, he was with me a lot of the time. He was there and I signed my first like my first Oh cool. Like, he was like sitting he was like sitting across from the dinner table. 
definitely. So that was a, a big moment. I was just like, that was my first time ever in New York, too. Right. Yeah, that's not bad. If you're going to have uh, another prize fighter sitting across from you, Andre Ward's not bad. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so the documentary airs on uh, on Showtime, uh, Kenny. But th- this isn't the first time that you've been on the network. You've fought four times yeah. on Showbox. Um, but yeah, it's been a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, you started off well with yeah. that emotional win over Robles to move to eleven and zero. Then you dropped a majority decision to Rolando Chinea. You drew with Montana Love. Uh, lost a unanimous decision to Samuel Tia. You had elbow surgery in there as well, uh, and and so now you're 14, two and one uh, with just one fight since November 2018. So uh, I'm sure a lot of people want to know what's the the status of your career right now, and and what are your plans moving forward? Uh, I'm working on some. I just got a call actually like two days ago about a fight in July. I don't really got all the details okay. right now, but. I'm still, I'm still working. I'm still fighting at 140 because I know a lot of people keep asking me about fighting at 147. Uh, now nah, I'm still fighting at 140. That last fight was just up heavy because the guy came in super heavy, so I just fought up. Okay, and you've been able to to keep in shape during these last couple months of uh, oh, yeah. of lockdown yeah, yeah, and everything. Definitely. That hasn't been an issue for you. Nah, uh, I mean the gyms in Chicago just opened up back up next. I mean last week, so. Before that, I was, like, running and shadow boxing. Again, like, me and my dad would do, like, mitts in the backyard. So I was still staying in shape. Okay, good. Well, look, uh, thanks so much for talking to us, Kenny. It's been, it was really interesting to watch your growth and watch everything on the documentary. And um, I hope you enjoy watching it. And we look forward to seeing you back on uh, Fighting on Showtime as well in the, in the near future, we hope. Thank you. Thanks very much, Kenny. Thanks, Kenny. Thank you. Appreciate it. So the story of Kenneth Sims Jr., as detailed in the documentary, had some setbacks, uh, such as failing to qualify for the Olympics and some tragedies, as we discussed with him just now. But his path was otherwise straightforward enough. He stayed out of trouble, focused on boxing, appeared on Showtime. Uh, The same could not be said for Destiny Butler Jr., whose experience during the documentary's production was an entirely different one that began and ended with a promising boxing career, but which was predominantly spent in incarceration, as he discussed with us. I think I was about 11 years old, 10 years old, somewhere around that age. But I didn't know at first that they were recording me and that they was going to make this out of a movie. I didn't know that until I was incarcerated and they had sent me a letter. Ah, uh, okay. Was 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 that what sort of prompted them, do you think, to, to reach out to include you in it? after? You know, Do you think they'd been planning to do that beforehand? Um, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I just, I just, I just think... Once, once they found out that I was, uh, once they found out that I was locked up, then they probably thought that it was a, it was a better story to tell now because yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that they talked to my father and he probably let them know what my plans was once I got out. So uh, you know, that that was a better story to capture. Okay, I, I've read that they decided to keep that documentary going until you were released because they felt they needed to be able to tell that whole story. So I'm, I'm curious whether you were aware of that while you were incarcerated. And, and if you were, did that give you any kind of motivation to make sure that the story that they ended with was, a, was an uplifting one? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, once they told me that, that they were um, waiting until I get out, you know, I didn't want to waste their time. So sure. that was that was a that was an extra motivation, extra motivational push for me. Yeah. And, and it certainly comes out interesting with both you and, and Kenny featured because you're on these different tracks. And, uh, and now you two are going to be 
bound together in a sense throughout your lives and careers because of this documentary. I know you guys knew each other as kids, but but how close exactly were you back then and how close are you guys now? Um, our, our relationship is the same as it was, you know, when we were kids. We uh, grew up boxing together. You know, we used to sleep in the same room together, same hotel, you know, lose weight together, train together. So, you know, we have a pretty good relationship. That's my guy. Anything that he does, I'm going to support him, and I'm pretty sure it's vice versa. Okay. Um, so th- there's sort of an obvious question here with, uh, with you know, you're, you're both around the same weight. You're both from the south side. You were both in this documentary together. If you wanted to fight each other, the pre-fight hype for Butler versus Sims kind of writes itself. Could it ever happen? <laughs> So somebody asked us that uh, at the at the uh, screening one time, and we said, "No, nah, we we probably would no, nah, we would never fight each other." Okay, uh, unless just, it's unless it's unless it's like for a billion dollars or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. If they, if they really back up the yeah, truck with yeah. money, maybe okay. It, 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 exactly, then you know, hey, the numbers, the numbers, come on, man, we got to go ahead and do this. Right. Okay. <laughs> so in the documentary, we see you. You know, when you're released and you're clearly strong, you've obviously been doing your push-ups, but that's real different to being in <laughs> boxing shape, of course. And almost immediately we see you go to the gym for a sparring session. And as I was watching it, I thought, there's no way he's going to be able to hang. And, and you couldn't. And But then months, <laughs> just months later, you were winning the Chicago Golden Gloves, which blows me away how you were able to do that. And how long did it take before you got that muscle memory back and you realized you could still do this? Um, yeah, like you said, uh, once I got out, you know, I, I looked like I was in boxing shape, but you can never be in boxing shape unless you're boxing and training. So, uh, yeah, the, that 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 was my first day out when I went back to the gym and, and sparred after after being out of boxing for for six years. Um, so yeah, he got he got the best of me, but he don't even want to see me no more after that. He don't he don't even like looking at me the wrong way. But no, but, uh, but yeah, I was four months out. Uh, you know, and one of one probably the biggest tournament in Chicago. But it, it took me, it took me, it took me the four four months. Like I needed, I needed all every every training session that I did. I needed all of that, all of those hours. You know, I was I was putting in work overtime because I knew what I had to do and I knew what I wanted to accomplish. But seriously, that's really no time at all for being out for six years to come back to that kind of level. I mean, no matter how much you work, I mean, that's that's really impressive that you were able to do that. Yeah, because I boxed my whole life. So, you know, it's like it's like it's like it's like riding a bike. Right. You, you just have to kind of peel off the layers of rust, kind of. But the, the skills and the, the exactly. muscle memory is still under there somewhere, kind of. Exactly. But I'm not your average boxer. So, so whoever's right. listening to this, don't take, <laughs> don't, don't take that advice. Right. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> so, so that was, as Kieran said, and you said, that was, that was four months after you got, uh, got out. Uh, about a year mm-hmm. after you got out. You're fighting at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas on the undercard of a pay-per-view featuring one of the biggest stars in the sport, Manny Pacquiao, who was up against your promoter, Adrian Broner. In all your wildest mm-hmm. dreams, did you ever imagine you could be on that big of a stage so soon? Uh, I, I was just going to say, not, not so soon. I didn't think it was going to come that soon. But, uh, I was definitely appreciative for that, for that opportunity. I love I seeing what I saw. I learned a lot from that. 
And uh, that's definitely the type of stage that I'm that I'm striving for that I want to be on. Okay. Was was that was there a sense of of awe at all of just how huge it was, or, or were you were were you pretty aware of what you were stepping into with uh be it being part of a Pacquiao Broner kind of show? Yeah, I was pretty aware because I feel like I'm ready for that type of stage. I feel like that's the type of stage that that's that's meant for me. And um, you know, but it was still it was still a beautiful. Um, a beautiful moment, you know, and I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind being around that type of stuff again. So. Right. So, so sort of talking of that, following on from that, like the documentary tracked you over, you know, eight, nine, ten years of your life, including four of the very lowest years of your life. Eight, nine years from now, let's say you're the subject of a follow-up documentary. What's that story? What's Destiny Butler Jr. going to do in and out of the ring between now and 2029? Um, you will definitely see me helping a lot of people. Um, definitely, definitely see me getting more involved with the community. Uh, me raising my son. Uh, me being a champion. Me being very wealthy. Me looking even better than I look today. <laughs> me being undefeated. You know, and me just running a boxing game and just being a successful, a successful person, man. Definitely a lot of good things, though. But that's that's definitely in the works too me uh okay me doing like a like a like a second part to to this story oh cool okay and i i love that you started your answer with with by saying me helping people that's that's great that that's the first place you went with that and and that leads to the to the last question that we want to ask you uh you know there, there's one scene in the documentary where your lawyer says to your father he had one bad month and they want to ruin his life for it. And it shows how easy it is for a life with promise to become derailed. What do you want people, you know, maybe other kids who are the age you were when you went to jail and who are maybe debating making some bad choices? What do you want people to, to take away from your story? I mean, yeah, like you said, uh, that one that one bad month could have ruined my life. But, um, you know, you just have to be aware of what you're doing, man. Whatever comes behind that, just just be just be ready for whatever, and just just basically take accountability of your actions. You know, mm. uh, it's all everything. Everything is a learning process, so you go through things to learn and to and to build yourself and to be better. So I don't regret nothing. You know, I'm here, and you know I'm moving forward. Awesome. Hey, look, Destiny, your story in this documentary is a great story of redemption. I'm sure a lot of people who are maybe seeing you for the first time in this documentary are going to be rooting for you throughout your career. We wish you the very best of luck, and uh, we hope to see you fighting on Showtime in the not-too-distant future. For sure. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Destiny. Thanks, Destiny. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks very much indeed to Kenneth Sims Jr. and to Destiny Butler Jr. for their time. Uh, both men uh, really coming across, I think, much the way they do in the documentary. Eh? Sims, Sims is very much the quieter guy, uh, although I love the fact that he said at some point early on that he's much more outgoing now than he was when he was younger. <laughs> when they started. Um, uh, Butler, clearly the more expansive, expressive guy of the two. Are. Yeah, the, two very different personalities, which, as you said, we kind of knew that from the doc, but I think it was even more pronounced uh, talking to them directly that uh, Destiny is, is kind of bubbly uh, and, and just instantly charismatic. And Kenny is a very nice, likable young man, but it took a little bit of tooth pulling there. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think listeners could probably hear our tones of voice shift between the two interviews. Yeah. We were very low-key and serious with Kenny, and then Destiny got us loose and laughing. 
Yep, yeah, very much. Um, let's bring in another voice, actually, to talk about the documentary and about the fighters featured in it, among a few other items. Making a swift return to the Showtime Boxing Podcast by popular demand, uh, Showtime <laughs> analyst and Boxing Hall of Famer, uh, Steve Farhood. Uh, Steve, welcome back. It has been four or weeks, five weeks, three weeks. I can't even tell. Time is meaningless to me at this point. Um, it's been some weeks since you joined us last. Uh, amazingly, during that time, the world has actually gotten worse. Uh, so <laughs> how are you doing with everything? Well, being in New York in the last three weeks or so has been interesting because some, unfortunately, some of the, uh, the looting and the, and the violence uh, it hit very close to uh, where I live. Mm. So that was a little uh, crazy. On top of, of course, the virus being the epicenter of the virus. Now, ironically, other parts of the country are really yeah. suffering with big upswings. In New York, it's pretty good. So uh, at least while you feel for everybody else, hopefully in New York, we've seen the worst. Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, there is an event uh, that was supposed to happen this weekend in the state of New York uh, that is not happening. Um, but before we get to the ringside dock, I, I, we just want to hit this uh, this topic because in introducing you, Kieran mentioned that you're a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And so th this weekend would have been induction weekend in Canastota. And I got somewhat depressed when I realized that, uh, you know, several months ago, Kieran and I had made a pitch to podcast from there. So, you know, that realization that, damn, we were supposed to be there this weekend, having fun, seeing lots of friends. And instead, nope, weekend number 13 or whatever we're up to of quarantine instead. Um, so question for you, would you say you're more bummed that there is no induction weekend going on right now or excited at the prospect of the greatest of all induction weekends next year? Well, I think more the former, um, right. you know, without knowing details about their finances, it's no secret that mm. Hall of Fame weekend is everything to the International right. Boxing Hall of Fame. And there isn't one this year. So what that does to them, I can only imagine financially. Um, they, they're not Cooperstown. They don't get a number of people right. per day up there celebrating and paying to get into the museum. So that's terrible. With that said, once it was determined that there wasn't going to be a, a, an induction weekend this year, boy, is that going to be something next year? That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you can't think about it. And I haven't been to, for, to an induction weekend since being inducted, which was three years ago. So I'm really looking forward to it. And it's going to be crazy up there. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think we're all just praying that we aren't talking a year from now about the real greatest of, of all induction <laughs> weekends in 2022. Yes. <laughs> Let's yes. hope not, because we know how strong a class it was going mm -hmm. in this year. Right. Who knows? I think next year is a pretty strong class, too, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So, you know, you combine the two and my goodness, it's going to be incredible. Yep. Yeah, let's hope so. Um, let's switch to uh, Ringside, the documentary that aired on Showtime this past Friday, still available on demand. Uh, all of us here, we're very used to the stories of boxers, you know, uh, using boxing as a way to escape poverty and, and violence. Uh, and the stories of, of Kenneth Sims Jr. and Destiny Butler Jr. sort of show that in two different ways. You've got Sims' father who forces him to stick with boxing and keeps him on the straight and narrow. And as a result, he's able to turn professional and ultimately get the ultimate goal of winding up in fighter meetings with Steve Farhood. Um, <laughs> Destiny Butler walks away from boxing and almost immediately winds up in trouble finds himself in jail, and then when he comes out, he turns back to the sport again. Um, look, as someone who's seen, written about, commentated on um, various versions of that story, of, of boxing being that path out of violence and, and poverty, what was your overall impression of, of that documentary and the two tales that it told? Well, you know, we're, we're lucky that 
documentarians so often choose boxing as a subject, no surprise that they do. No surprise that Hollywood so often chooses boxing as a subject because the stories are, are amazing and unique. Watching Ringside, what struck me was a couple of things. One is it's very important for all of us, and I speak for all of us, to take these stories as individual stories and look at them freshly each time because there's a tendency to think of these stories as almost cliched at this point. Mm. You know, the, the, the inner city kid of color coming up through boxing and having boxing save him. Well, in watching Ringside, I think what struck me and what enabled me to look at it with a fresh set of eyes instead of a skeptical set of eyes was that I, I realized because of the way the film was made, these are kids. Yeah. You know, these are just, these, these aren't established young men. These are kids. Mm. And the pressure on them, you know, I, I use the analogy, you can be a mediocre accountant and make a living. If you're a mediocre boxer, you ain't making much of a living, let me tell you. Right. You really have to. So, so when a kid like Kenneth Sims doesn't make the Olympic team, you realize how crushing it is. And there are times in the documentary where you see, you know, there are emotional scenes about both fighters. And it just struck me that these are young kids. And also, just to, one other point I've made before, but I find it very interesting, is that for the most part, I find it interesting that, and I guess you could say this about other sports, but specific, specifically boxing, we, the middle-class, white, educated journalists are paid to try to understand mm. inner-city people of color who are uneducated, not unintelligent, but uneducated. Mm. I always found, find that very interesting. And I think this documentary highlighted that difference uh, more than most. Mm. Yeah, Eric and I were talking about it earlier and, and really watching it at this time for me with everything that's going on right now really sort of struck it struck me much more than I think it might have done previously. You really do get a sense of the systemic disadvantages that, you know, that some parts of society face. And, and I, I mentioned to Eric, the thing that really struck me was when Destiny Butler was in that boot camp and you've got these African-American and Hispanic uh, inmates being yelled at and bullied and shouted at by white guards. And, and it was just that, that dichotomy. It really kind of struck her more, I thought, for me now yeah. than even it might have been a month or so ago. Yeah, that, that's a great point, and I, I thought the same thing. And also, you know, at a time like this, it also gives us time to examine or re-examine boxing in, in a racial prism. In so many ways, boxing is so far ahead of other industries because, you know, it's a meritocracy in terms of boxing for the most part. Um, I remember when I started, it was said of Marvin Hagler, he's got three strikes against him. Hey. He's the southpaw, he's good, and he's black. Yeah. Well... If anything, there can be reverse discrimination where you just assume a white guy can't fight. Some people do that. Um, yet at the same time, throughout history, boxing has used race and prejudice to benefit itself. We go back to Johnson Jeffries. We look at Holmes Cooney, et cetera. That hasn't changed. So in some ways, you applaud boxing. And in other ways, you know, as we all have been many times, you're embarrassed by it. Yeah. Interesting point. And one, one other thing in the, in the documentary that, that stood out to me is just, you know, it's obviously it's very much a father's and son's story. And the two chief supporting characters, the fathers, are at least as fascinating as the two main characters, if not more so. That was something that I wasn't necessarily expected when I sat down to start watching. Yeah. And, and I've gotten to know Kenneth Sims Sr. and Jr. pretty well because they've been four times on Showbox. Uh, Kenneth's record in those four fights is one, two and one. 
And I found it interesting. This is a, a nitpicking, perhaps, but at the end of the show, when they put the graphic up to right. update the, the, the viewers on where these fighters are, they, they describe Kenneth Sims as a contender. And, right. and with all fairness to Kenneth, he's been a little bit of a disappointment in his showbox fights going one, two, and one. He seems to have a little bit of a stamina problem. I hope he can overcome that because he's got a lot of skills, but he hasn't quite gotten to the point where we, we thought he would get to. Right. Well, speaking of that specifically, one noteworthy scene in the documentary covers a night you were present for when, when we see uh, Sims make his showbox debut as he scores an emotional points win in Atlantic City and uh, said to be the first of four appearances for him on showbox, but his only win so far. So what, what's your sense from seeing him up close several times about how good he is, what, what his ceiling might be and what he needs to do to, to kick it up another level if that's possible? And also, have you seen anything at all of, of Destiny Butler, who's now 9-0, and uh, for you to be able to form any impression of, of his potential. Well, I know Destiny Butler is is being considered down the road for a performance on Showbox. The problem with him, I think of the fighter Vaughn Alexander, Devin Alexander's brother, who spent mm-hmm. a long time, much longer than Destiny, in jail. He came out of jail. He didn't have a boxer's body anymore. He had a, a prison inmate's body, over-muscled. Yep. Vaughn was never the same fighter and, and has, has performed really with mediocrity since coming out of jail. I think it's very important, even though Destiny might be a little advanced in age, I think it's very important that they really take their time with him and let him get his boxing legs back, get it, let him get his boxing body back, because he was a very skilled fighter. I had heard of him. I didn't know much about him until the documentary. In the case of Sims, he's got all the physical skills. There seems to be something missing in terms of stamina. Perhaps that's being a little too uptight before he fights. I don't know. But... He'll get more chances. He's still young. He's got that going from which Destiny does not necessarily have being a little older. Um, but Sims has a lot of skills. And I, again, I think in the big picture, he's been a little bit of a disappointment. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I do wonder, you know, depending on how big the audience for this documentary turns out to be, I wonder if it could have any contender effect, uh, which, which is to say, you know, it's not going to make these guys superstars but it does get some segment of the boxing audience really glued to their stories and following their careers going forward. I, I know just for me personally, next time that I see that Kenny Sims is on a show box or Destiny Butler is making a show box debut, I'm going to be that much more interested than I would be in the typical show box fighter. Well, I think in looking at the big picture of what you're talking about, what the contender did and what documentaries like this do is something that TV always strives to do, whether it's Showtime or HBO in their day or streaming services, whatever it is, humanize the fighter. Right. The audience is going to be more interested in a fighter if he's humanized. You know, back in the day, in this, in the late 70s, early 80s, ABC did what they called up-close-and-personal pre- uh, uh, features on fighters. This is something I think TV can improve upon. Nobody did it like the contender, obviously. That was part of their mission statement. But when you do connect with a fighter on a personal level, you're that much more interested and fans will have the reaction you had that you want to see him again and again. Yeah. Um, Moving on to some other Showtime boxing programming that's coming up. Uh, Over the next couple of weeks, we see some selections from the Super 6 Super Middleweight Tournament. Uh, This Friday, we get replays of Carl Frotch's win over Glenn Johnson and Andre Ward's defeat over uh, Arthur Abraham, followed by the Super 6 final uh, in which Ward defeats Frotch. Um, I'm going to make 
what today feels like a horribly embarrassing confession about what in hindsight seems terrible analysis. When this all began, I picked Abraham to win the whole tournament. Um, <laughs> uh, it seems incredibly obvious now for Ward to have been the pick. Um, but what were your feelings going into it? And what do you think did and didn't work with the Super Six? Well, first of all, your pick was not that outlandish at all. I remember the odds. You'd think in retrospect, oh, Andre Ward had to be the favorite. Right. Well, he wasn't. I don't believe. I think the European fighters were all favored over the Americans. Kessler was quite mm -hmm. hot at the time. Mm -hmm. And Abraham, was, was he undefeated or did he have one loss? I think he was undefeated. I think he was undefeated also. Yeah. And mowing everybody. So, yeah. yeah. So your, your pick was quite understandable. But I have, I have great memories of the Super Six. First of all, big picture, it crawled to the finish line. But it got to the finish line. <laughs> yes. And it got to the finish line with a good final fight. Yeah. It's even better in retrospect because Frotch is better than we initially thought. So right. that said, but on a personal level, I spent a Thanksgiving in Helsinki, uh, which was an interesting thing doing. Uh, Helsinki was, which fight I have it written down here, um, Frotch Abraham okay. was, was in Helsinki. And I don't know if you guys remember the volcanic ash they had. Yes. The, uh, the volcano. Well, I had two days notice to tell me I was going to Herning, Denmark for uh, Kessler Frotch. And I flew from JFK to Paris, Paris to Copenhagen, Copenhagen to Herning, Denmark. And for a fight that we weren't even 100% sure was going to happen. But that was a great experience. That was probably the best fight Kessler ever fought. Uh, beating Frotch, and, and the only reason he beat him is because he had the home field advantage. So right. a lot of memories of that tournament, and uh, somehow they pulled it off. It took a while. It was, <laughs> there were a lot of bumps along the way, some illegal punches along the way. But, yes, uh, <laughs> right. But, but a good finish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you, you, the bumps along the way, several things went wrong in, in that tournament, but for the people things w went right for, they really went right. I mean, that tournament made Andre Ward, uh, and it also made the guy who finished runner-up. It pushed Carl Frotch's career to another level. You know, the, those two guys, their legacies and their star power for the rest of their careers, they really benefited enormously from the Super Six, and I feel like that's kind of the lasting legacy of, mm -hmm. of the event. And how amazing is it that Arthur Abraham, I think, is still fighting. This you know, he was he was exposed a little bit um, in that tournament, but we remember, you know, a lot of his fights pre-tournament, how tough he was and what he mm -hmm. was thought of going in. So there were there were great stories in that tournament. Even even Andre Durrell was somewhat exposed um, and never really got over that that no. after the after the knockdown punch they right. took from Abraham, his career was never the same. Yeah. All right. Well, in addition to watching boxing documentaries and old boxing matches and tournaments, we can now, for the first time in about three months, watch live boxing. Uh, Top Rank and ESPN last week aired the first two of their new boxing cards from the bubble at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. And these cards were a mixed bag. The first show back on Tuesday, uh, headlined by Shakur Stevenson's sixth-round stoppage of Felix Caraballo, was pretty much all ugly mismatches. The second show on Thursday was actually pretty solid with Adam Blue Nose Lopez winning a majority decision in a fun scrap against Luis Correa and Jesse Magdaleno fighting through lots of fouls <laughs> and winning by DQ in round 10 over Yennefel Vicente. There are three more cards airing next week. Uh, how important are these early shows, Steve? Is this a chance to 
attract new fans, a, a chance that the Shakur Stevenson card probably blew? Uh, or, or is it not really about that? Is it mostly about getting fighters active again and we can worry about the quality of the fights later? Yeah, I think if there are new fans to be made, great. Um, I know that personally I was giving top rank a pass on the quality of the fights. That first show, the fights were not very good. Second show, as you said, they were better. That wasn't what it was about. I thought their first hour, I think in the first hour of Tuesday night's show, they had one round of boxing. Right. But when you heard Andre Ward and Tim Bradley address the Black Lives Matter issue, yeah. to me, that blew away everything else. There was nothing else about that show that was interesting. They were both so good. And, you know, I, I was not surprised knowing Andre very well. He's a very, very bright guy and very verbal. But Timmy surprised me because mm -hmm. Timmy spoke directly from the heart and seemed on the verge of losing it a couple of times and didn't. And his words were incredibly powerful. And it was just great to see fighters who we so often view as just as just fighters, you know, sp spread out their their uh, their wings, so to speak, and, and address this issue. And I'm, I'm really glad ESPN and Top Rank deserve credit for giving them the opportunity to do that, because to me, that made the show. That was that's the only thing I'll take away from that first show. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great point that 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 was very well handled and that what those guys had to say was really powerful. And then the, the one, one other intersection between the serious stuff going on in, in the world uh, and those shows is concerns Michaela Mayer and right. the fact that uh, she was not able to compete. She apparently tested positive and now it kind of sounds like it was most likely a false positive because she tested negative after that. As bad as I feel for her and as troubling as it is to realize the testing is not 100%, I, I guess we would all have to say that false positives are far less problematic than, than false negatives. But I, I don't know if you had any any takeaway, Steve, from just what went down with Michaela Mayer and the whole testing situation around this. Well, it was unfortunate for her, but this was a this was a roadblock and, and a, you know something that we knew could happen. Right. And it's far better to err on the side of caution, obviously. And you know what? You can't look at top rank and say shame on them because, or shame on the MGM or anybody else because this was the first time. Yep. They admitted it. They were going in blind. This was going to be difficult, whether it be Showtime or Top Rank or Dizona, whoever it was, it was going to be difficult. And, you know, UFC, what, a month before, three weeks before, had a, a positive test as well mm -hmm. for their show. So it's going to happen. And, and nobody can be, you know, mightier than uh, stand on high ground and say, oh, that won't happen to us. It could happen to anybody. Right. So, so uh, what are you hearing about when Showtime may be coming back? Is there any, any inside information you're at liberty to share? Well, no date yet officially. Um, certainly looking at late July, maybe early August. I don't know. Nothing's been said to me firmly. Um, there are so many concerns. You know, one of, one of Top Rank's concerns was dealing with the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Obviously, Showtime, if they do it in, in L.A., which has been rumored, they would have to deal with the California Commission, different site. Um, nothing's been determined for sure yet, So, nor, nor have the fights been determined. So I can't give you really any information, but uh, obviously what you hope for is that they learn, Showtime learned in a production sense from top rank. Going second or going third is going to benefit them because they will have learned from some of the things that top rank has gone through. Yeah, and there's so much... I mean, difficulty and uncertainty, uh, listening to Bob talking about how he's hoping that it will go from this bubble that they're in into gradually bigger fights and have more people in the arena. There's, there seems to be this assumption across the land that we're 
going to be making this constant progress now. But as you alluded to earlier, New York cases may be going down, but Texas, California, Arizona, any number of states, the situation seems to be getting worse. So I don't know that we're necessarily uh, on a flight path out of here yet. No, it's a fluid situation. And I think the diff difficulties that the other major sports have had in getting started speaks volumes about that. Um, we don't know. But, you know, boxing without fans, I was given a little bit of a taste of it when we did that show in Minnesota. Right. Um, it wasn't all that different for us. Mm. Uh, Brandon Lee, the fighter, said that he thinks he would have finished his opponent faster had there been an audience because he would have been more pumped up. I think that for the bigger fights, for the, for the Showtime Championship boxing fights as opposed to the Showbox fights, there will be a more pronounced difference in the atmosphere without a crowd than there will be for the smaller fights. And the top-ranked fights were smaller fights, even though you had world-class fighters like Justin Magdaleno. Um, so I think the effect of not having crowds still hasn't been fully uh, realized, and we'll feel that as the fights get more important, more important and bigger. I'll tell you this from a broadcasting standpoint. I've called fights off a monitor, both live and tape. It's horrible. Mm. It's not the same. No. I think ESPN, Joe Tessitore, and the analysts did a very good job. It's very hard not to talk over each other. You know, when you're doing something like that, they did a good job. Um, it's, but it's not the same. And I think ultimate, ultimately the viewer senses that it's not the same. Yeah, it's hard enough not to talk over, your over each other when you're sitting right next to each other, let alone exactly. when you're in your other's homes, right? So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so still going even further into the realm of fantasy fights, perhaps, given that we have no idea what the situation is going to be like. Um, a couple of quick news items before we go. There has been an announcement that Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury have supposedly agreed, made, come to a financial agreement for two fights in 2021, uh, which the two men would split the purse 50-50 for a first fight, the winner would get 60, and the loser 40 for a second fight. Great, great news. Uh, except the Fury's still got to get past Deontay Wilder one last time. Joshua is on crutches and then has to beat <laughs> Kubrat Pulev. Somewhere in that mix, Dillian White is supposedly way overdue's a mandatory shot. Um, so hearing this news, is this something we should allow ourselves to get a smidgen of excitement about, or is this just... You know, another one to add to the pile of, yes, maybe this will happen, maybe this won't. And you didn't even mention Usyk, who supposedly... Usyk, yes, there you go. Too. Yeah, yeah. So I'll put it this way, Kieran. There's only about seven, 73 things that could go wrong before we get to that fight. <laughs> ah, you're an optimist. I'm an optimist, yeah. I mean, if, if the coronavirus has taught us anything, it's that tomorrow is not promised. That's for sure. Right. This announcement seemed to be just a publicity stunt to me. Mm. Uh, there's too many things to happen beforehand. Deontay Wilder, despite the fact that Fury beat him so easily the second time, is not a fighter to be taken for granted. Yep. Plus, if I remember correctly, Fury on, the, on ESPN's interview with him Tuesday or Thursday, I think it was Thursday, said terms have not been agreed upon. Right. He said that. Now, if that's the case, then the announcement was not worth the video it was shot on. <laughs> and I just take it to be nothing but a publicity stunt, which is fine. That's how promoters work. Um, that's how networks work. I get it. I hope we get that fight eventually, but I'm not uh, I'm not signing off on it as a done deal quite yet. Yeah, I, I had the same reaction as a result of, of that interview of Fury admitting there's nothing on paper at all, no contracts, nothing formal, that they're basically just going public with some behind the scenes conversations. It, it, because of that, it, 
it feels somewhat of a piece with the Mike Tyson comeback hype to me that this is one of those coronavirus quarantine, let's find something to get people talking kind of stories. Like, I wouldn't say it's quite a non-story, but it, it just doesn't have much substance to it until, like, you know, 73 hurdles are cleared, as he says. Right. And, and the other thing is that I think at this point, ESPN is in the Tyson Fury business. Any excuse right. they can have to put him on, let's face it, he's a very, very, you know, alternately charming and sophisticated, intelligent, crazy. I, he's everything. <laughs> Any excuse to put him on the air, they're going to take it. Right. Right. All right. Well, uh, finally here, uh, not momentous news, but fairly significant. Uh, former light heavyweight champion Oleksandr Gvozdik announced his retirement at the age of 33 to pursue business interests. Gvozdik became lineal champion when he knocked out Adonis Stevenson and injured him critically uh, before losing his title by stoppage to Artur Beterbiev last fall. He retires with a record of 17-1. and one. It was a short career, and he's retiring young by boxing standards. And as we know, Retirements like that don't usually stick, but given the circumstances of the the Stevenson fight and Gvozdik's gentle personality, do you think, Steve, this one will be different? Well, what I have here, this is a boxing dictionary. And as I look at the (laughs) word retirement, it says what a fighter does between fights. (laughs) (laughs) I've used that one before. I appreciate you laughing as if it's the first time you heard it. But anyway... It's impossible not to be skeptical when a young, relatively young man retires from boxing who has earnings potential still. Um, but, you know, I, I'm looking at the bigger picture here, and I don't know if this applies to Vazdik or not. I don't know him at all. I've never met him. But you wonder if the attitude of football players who now understand the potential damage to the mm-hmm. brain that football causes, And as a result of understanding that, a lot of them have walked away at a very early age. You wonder if that's going to apply to those in boxing who have an option in life and can walk away from it. Mm. Obviously, our sport is in danger if that happens. Um, But generally speaking, we always use the term boxing. You know, you don't choose boxing. Boxing chooses you. You don't get hit in the head for a living if you don't have to. Um, And you wonder if, if... all we've learned about CTE and everything else and brain injury in boxing, football, whether this will have a long-term effect on the athletes, some of whom have options and aren't going to look at just about the money. They're going to look at something like, I, I want to be able to play with my children when I'm 50 and 60 years old. Yeah. 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 I mean, that is an interesting trend to to keep an eye on, see if it becomes more of a trend and uh, re- really zooming in on sort of a, a, a micro trend, uh, perhaps, uh, is that uh, Tim Bradley also retired around the same age uh, when he still had plenty of earnings potential. And uh, what do those two have in common? I think you can only last so many fights being trained by Teddy Atlas before you just run out of business. <laughs> So there's 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 my highly serious in-depth analysis. There you go. There you go. Hey, look, Steve, thank you once again for joining us. Thanks for coming back so soon after last time. I dread to think what kind of dystopian disaster the world is going to be in if you come back again in a few weeks, but we'll see. Bad luck. <laughs> we don't blame you, Steve. Whatever's going on in the world, we don't hold it against you at all. <laughs> right. Not entirely. Not entirely. <laughs> Steve, hey, look, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us again. And hopefully... The next time we see each other, it'll be in person ringside somewhere. But if not, um, then you're always welcome back here. Thanks very much for classing up the joint again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. and look forward to next time, guys. Stay right. well. Stay healthy. Thanks you very too. much. Thanks, you too, Steve. Steve. Thank you. 
All right, uh, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, dedicated to the late Ray Raskin. Uh, thanks again to Steve Farhood, Kenneth Sims Jr., and Destiny Butler Jr. Uh, as a reminder, you can see Ringside on Showtime On Demand and via the Showtime Now streaming app. And as another reminder, you can revisit the Super 6 double feature Andre Ward versus Arthur Abraham and Carl Frotch versus Glenn Johnson this Friday on Showtime beginning at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. We will be back next week. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, 